Nehemiah chapter 9 tonight. We are picking up after we left off last time with some great words from Ezra on the joy of the Lord is our strength, but we also saw that there was a first half to that teaching that often gets left out that we need to include whenever we are going to use that in our life and a number of other things, but if we take too much time to review, we won't get through all that's here in Nehemiah chapter 9. So let's pick up here. We see that God gives things to us through his mercy. God gives us things through his covenant. But there is also a third way that God gives us blessings and things from him. And we're going to take a look at those here in this chapter. In verse 1, Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. This is only a couple days after we just left the feast. I'm wondering in November if these guys got to do any work at all. I mean, it's... This is quite a time commitment for, for service. The eight days they had before, then they got about two days. Then they're back over here again on the 24th day of the month. And they were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust, dust on their heads. So apparently all of them were there. At least it sure seems like it has all of them there. But in a great assembly like that, you're probably going to have some of those people who said, I do not need to humble myself and just showed up. You're going to have those who say, well, I'm not going to do it from repentance because I don't need to repent, but I'll just do it for show. Make sure I look spiritual to all the people that are around me. But God looked on those who were sincere, and that's really all that he's focused on in this. Verse 2, Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day, and for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. The reason here for the separation is not anything to do with we're looking at people that are foreigners as less than ourselves. We are greater than them. It's really easy to come out with that conclusion, but that's not the reason. Once you look at the reason for the prayer and the confession, it all has to do with the history of the Israelites. There was no need to count those who were not part of the history of the Israelites. It's not that they were not any less or not even that they weren't welcome. But do we separate them? We are the ones who have to come together for this prayer and for this time with God. The other ones were, were still there. So don't see it as anything in a, in a racial connotation that they weren't of the race, but they're looking at uh, repenting for some things from, that had gone on in their history. So that's why they pulled themselves apart for this. And they stood in their place, verse 3, and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. Now they just had read through the law in the feast. And now we're going to go through and read it again. They spent a quarter of the day reading the book of the law, and the other quarter of the day they spent confessing and worshiping with the Lord. Now when you draw close to God like they had done in the feast that time, when they were uh, listening to the word being read and explained, they had all that time of drawing closer to God, it can make you very aware of spiritual needs that we hadn't seen before. And this may be what's going on with them, as they're getting closer to God, they're seeing some needs and some things that they need to do. But it is good when you see this, they didn't just become sin conscious. They went to the Word to get God's perspective. Very often, if we're left to ourselves and we looked at all the things that we've done that are not right, or all the things that have gone on in our past that are not right, we can become so sin conscious, but they didn't do that. They stayed with the reading of the Word, and then the other part of the time they were worshiping and confessing their sins. But then they're back into the Word again. It's always good to get that word perspective. Then in verse 4, then Jeshua, Benai, Kedmiel, 
Shabani, Beni, Shirabiah, and Banai, and uh, Oen Shanani, stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kedmiel, Benai, Hashabani, Shirabiah, Hadanah, Shabaniah, Pesahiah, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Always good to start off with the things of the Lord, praying with just exclaiming who He is. Just come in there with, with praise and thanksgiving, things like that, instead of just coming in there with doom and gloom. A lot of people open up their prayers with doom and gloom. You don't want to do that. You want to start it off this way. That's how Jesus taught prayer, coming in with worship in the first part. Now, these men led Israel in prayer, perhaps one at a time, and maybe it was spontaneous prayer, or maybe the prayer was written out. But this is thought to be, I, thought, I saw this note, I thought this was really interesting. This is thought to be the longest prayer in record in the Bible. And it only takes six and a half minutes to read. Effective prayer does not need to be long. Verse 6, You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. So they start out with, with praise like all prayer should. Verse 7, You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of, the, of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to give it to his descendants. And you have performed your words, for you are righteous. I did like the New Living Translation on this verse. It said, or this part of the verse, And you have done what you promised, for you are always true to your word. We use that for the Facebook graphic that we put up there today. Now, I thought this was interesting to note. It kind of jumped out at me this time as I was reading over this when God changed Abram's name to Abraham. It started me on a little little rabbit trail that ended up being far too much we can cover on this one, so maybe some other time we'll, we'll save it for that. But God changed something of a man he called, but he didn't do it right away. He called Abram, but he made a change, but he didn't do it right away. I thought about this. Some parts of us do not speak the best of what God calls us to. But God didn't see to change it until Abraham had a need to get, by, get past it. God could have used Abraham as Abram. And would have no problem with that. He didn't make him Abraham until Abram couldn't get past the fact that he was not the father of any. So, all right, let's just give you the name Father of Many and change the way that you're talking about this, change the way other people are talking about you, and let's see what that does. What has been a hindrance to us is not a hindrance to God unless we can't get past it. Sometimes there's some things that hinder us and we see them as a hindrance to God. There is nothing in our life when He calls us that will hinder Him from doing what He wants to do. If they're already hindered, this will change them. And we're going to take a look at some people that he did change right away. But his name did not hinder him as much as his new name propelled him. 
The enemy always wants you to look at your shortcomings and say, until you change this, you'll never become this. Don't listen to them. If there are anything in your life that will be changed, as you grow, those things will probably just change on their own. But God called you as you are. Keep that in mind. Now, I, looked, I went through the Bible on this. I saw that there are... Uh, that God had interaction on the names of 12 people in the Bible. There are 12 people. But out of those 12, only three he renamed. So I went through to make a list of this. Not in your outline, wouldn't have fit there. But first off, he named Adam. He didn't rename Adam, he named Adam. Adam named Eve. He did not name Moses. But the name worked. He didn't change Moses' name. Didn't need to change Moses' name. But Moses did become the redeemer or uh, deliverer. He renamed Abram and Sarah. He did not name uh, where was the I'm sorry. He named, named Isaac but he did not name Jacob and Esau parents named Jacob and Esau. But he gave Abram, Abraham Isaac's name. So that's another one that he named. He didn't rename. He did rename Jacob. He renamed him to Israel. However, we see in the book of Genesis that he kind of bounced back and forth between Jacob and Israel. It didn't stay. Abraham, it stuck. He stayed with the new name. He named Ishmael. He did not name Samuel. But God was very involved in his birth. Now here's one that you probably would not roll off the tip of your tongue. In fact, you'll probably have to go look it up to say, is that really right? But there is one that he named, and I hope I do justice on this, this name. It is a fairly long name. But God named them. The name is Maher Shalah Hash Baz. Anybody remember him? <laughs> I didn't think so. There's not one that's going to name roll off the tip of your tongue. He's the son of Isaiah. He was actually, God actually told Isaiah, I said, I want you, it, it's kind of confusing in the, in the Bible. It says, I want you to go into the prophetess. Actually, he says, then I went into the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. And people are looking at it and say, what in the world? Well, his wife was probably a prophet, prophetess. And that's what it was talking about there. It just called her the prophetess. And, um, and then, you know, a little while later, he was, the, the son was born. There were some representative things that were going to, go on, going to go on there. Hosea, he had multiple children who God had given meaningful names to. Lord Jezreel, Lo Ruhamah, that was a girl, and Lo Ami. Each of those had a significant name, something that was to be going on. Then we get to the New Testament, and we have two. John the Baptist and Jesus. That was it. Now, all those named from birth were named for purpose in the Old Testament. If they were given a name at birth, that name had a purpose in the Old Testament. The three renamed were changed how they spoke about themselves or how others spoke about them. The two in the New Testament were given names fitting their ministry. John and Jesus. There was not a purpose that they were to fulfilled bared in their name. But both of those were common names of the day 
but their ministry would cause those names to rise above all the rest. A whole lot more you could do with those, just a little bit there, but we're going to move on because we're not going to get through all this. Verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and against all his servants and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. In their praises of God, they cite many events in their history that they were not present for. But they mentioned them as though they had been there. How good it is to remember what God did, not just for us, but to remember what he did for those people in our past, those people who came before us. They're reflecting on the goodness of God. And that is a great attitude to have in prayer. Don't reflect on the evil things going on. Don't reflect on the disappointments in life. Reflect on the goodness of God when we go to prayer. This is what they're doing. They're spending this time reflecting on the goodness of God. And reading the Bible as they're going through this is not hurting them at all. They're coming, oh yeah, yeah, God did that. Oh yeah, God did that. Verse 11, And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. God's power is a blessing to those who serve Him and destruction to those who rebel. We see that certainly in the book of Revelation, how much the power of God can, can destroy and bring destruction. But oh, what, the, what a blessing it can bring to those who serve Him. Verse 12, Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. So these were continual. When one stopped, the other started. They were 24 hours, one or the other they had above them. You come down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them, pre- <clears throat> commanded them precepts, statutes and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. God didn't just expect these things from those who served them. He spoke to them first. God never has expectations that he hasn't first spoken to us and given to us that we can read them, we can hear them. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of a rock for their thirst and told them to go in to possess a land which you have sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments. Here are the people As they come before God, they are remembering what a bad response their fathers had toward the goodness of God and let it remind them to not follow the same path. Boy, that's a good thing to do. Think of some of the people in the past, in the Bible especially, and we see the bad response they had to the goodness of God. Oh, i got to keep that in mind. I want to make sure that I don't follow and do that same thing. But I stay in that place of remembering the goodness of God. Verse 17, they refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness 
and did not forsake them. They're saying all these things. They're in a city that has been in disrepair. They had been in exile for some 70 years. They had enemies on all their sides that wanted to wipe them out. They had all kinds of other issues that were going on. They finally just got the wall built. The temple had been built before. There was no homes built on the inside. Not, not many of them anyway. And in this state, they are, they are praising God and repenting for the things of their past. They refused to obey. It says they were able to obey, but decided not to. Sometimes we cite at times that we are unable to obey. That's not true. Whatever God speaks to us, we are able to do because he supplies the power to get it done. And they very often during that time may have been saying those things. We can tell ourselves we are unable to do what is asked of us. Just as we can tell ourselves that we can do, just as we can tell ourselves we can do what others say is impossible. How many times do we hear somebody say, well, you can't get that done, so we're determined to do it. But sometimes we just come to God and say, well, God, I know you asked me to get that done, but I can't do that. Yeah, we can. They were not mindful of your wonders, he said. This happens when we become mindful of something else. I'm going to give you four examples of this, but you can go through the Word of God in your own head and come up with a whole mess of them. It happened to the disciples when they were sinking in the boat from the storm. They suddenly became mindful that Jesus didn't care. They weren't mindful of that before. They were mindful about how great their master was and how much they wanted to serve him and get them to the other side. And how they started bailing the water, trying to help out the master. But then suddenly they become mindful that he doesn't care. Adam and Eve became mindful of what they didn't have. Saul became mindful of what he was losing, not what he had done to lose it. He picked up jealousy, outrage, anger, all toward God. Jeroboam became mindful of what he imagined might be lost. There are so many others. But that's what they had said here of them. They were not mindful of your wonders. We are not mindful of the good things of God. We are going to become mindful of something else. So they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. Now bondage, though restrictive and detrimental, it does have appeal when we've been loosed from it into something which, with better promises and hope. This bondage can still have an appeal even though we've been loosed from it and have been involved in something that has better promise and hope. But then we realize it has a whole lot more responsibility. It has a whole lot more unseen and a whole lot that is unrealized yet. I have to go and pursue. Become uncomfortable and insecure. They can cause some to desire the comfort that came with the bondage. It may be undesirable, restrictive, and detrimental, but at times we can say, I'd rather have that than be pursuing a promised land and all this faith I have to exercise and all these battles I have to fight. Let me just go back to where everything I needed for the day was provided for and even though I was beaten and even though it was tough, it, right now it looks better. Verse 18, Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, This is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and were great provocations. 
Yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them day by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. It is so easy to become mindful of how God let us down when things didn't quite go right. Here, they looked at how God continually protected them even as the people were rebelling. So easy to get mindful of all that brought us to that point of rebellion. But they looked back on this and they said, did you notice that the pillar of cloud stayed over the rebellious people? The fire stayed over the rebellious people. Even in the midst of their rebellion, God never pulled it. He didn't pull it on their bad days and put it back on their good days. It stayed the whole time they were there. The manna continued to fall even when they were in rebellion. They don't see that about God. Or we, we may not have a pillowy cloud and fire that could be seen, but we certainly have the hand of God on us even in our times of disobedience. We have to sometimes be mindful and even look for. I was disobedient. I was in rebellion. I was not obedient here. But look at what God still did for me. See, those are the kind of things you can bring into prayer time. Well, disobedience depends on the mercy side of God instead of the blessing side, obedience and submission do. It's a whole lot better to be on the blessing side of God than it is to be on the mercy side of God. I thank God for the mercy side of God. We all have needed that at times. But it is better on the blessing side of God. There is more on us to do more responsibility on us. But oh, it is so much better on the blessing side. Verse 20. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Now listen, just my thoughts on this. I think about this. Forty years he sustained them. He never intended to sustain them for 40 years. He intended them to be sustained for a short while and then go out to the promised land and enter in. Their disobedience caused the 40 years. God not one time complained or cited as a problem. Now i got to feed you guys for 40 years. i got to have 40 years of manna now instead of just a little one or two years that we were planning on heaven. I mean, that's a big commitment right there. <laughs> Never hear a word of that from God. I got more water to bring out of places to, to get you guys taken care of. I put this in your outline for you. You may receive some blessings while disobedient to his will. You may receive some blessings while disobedient to his will. But nothing like it could have, could have been under submission to his will. It could be so much better for us if we get under submission to his will. Instead of taking what blessings come to us while we are disobedient. There are some blessings that are going to come. Manna will come to the disobedient. The pillar of cloud will come to the disobedient. These things come to the disobedient, but they're not the blessings, not the ones that God wants to pour out, not the ones that God described. You're going to go into a place with cities already built, furnished, Houses already have furnishings inside of them. 
You're just going to walk in and take them. They're all going to be yours. Wow, that's a... Can you imagine that? Be, if, walk in, pick your house. It's all furnished. Really nice, too. City's already built. We've got vineyards already growing. You don't have to start them and wait you know, 10 years so you can start pulling some fruit. No, they're already going now. We've got fruit trees out there in abundance. They're all growing, producing things. And this land really produces, too. You, you were used to grief before. Take a look at these grapes. This will be a whole lot better for you. That's the blessings of God. I think about this as parents, which at one time we all either were parents, are parents, or had parents. But as parents, they still plan meals, feed, bathe, clean, dress, and otherwise provide for disobedient children. But we do so out of mercy and responsibility. Not so much out of joy and blessing. How much more, how much better is as a child when you have your parents ministering to you under joy and blessing than simply under mercy and responsibility. That's exactly what it's like for God. He will continue to change your diapers, plan your meals, do all those things when you're disobedient. But you really want to get into the blessings of God? You've got to become like David, a man after God's own heart. You've got to become like Joseph, Mary, Samuel, Elijah, people who, uh, they, they were not on the disobedient side. They were not on the mercy and responsibility side. They were on the side that God with joy, gladness, poured out blessing on them. Daniel, Moses, how many others we can look at? that God was glad to pour out mercy, glad to pour out blessings upon them. Not because of mercy. Because they were pursuing God and doing these things. Little blessings from God can seem like abundance when added to a short supply. I missed an H in there. But when added to a short supply. You listen to some people, they talk about the blessings of God. Really? That's what you see as a blessing? Little blessings from God can seem like abundance when added to a short supply. Ah, but we've got to start expanding who our God is and what our God can do. And it's not finding a quarter on your way to work. But if you're in short supply, that seems like a much bigger blessing. Well, we come to the place of mercy. In verse 22, Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied your children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go and to possess. God gave them military victory. That's spoil. Greatly multiplied their numbers in the wilderness. This is all talking about things in the wilderness. The victory over Sihon, the victory over Heshbon. These were in the wilderness under Moses. These are told of in Deuteronomy 1 and 2 and Numbers 21 if you want to go look them up. Deuteronomy 1 and 2 and Numbers 21. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings 
and the people of their land, that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities in a rich land and possessed houses full of goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled, grew fat, and delighted themselves in your great goodness. This is where blessings and great abundance await Israel. They just had to, by faith, go and get it. In the wilderness, the blessings had to come and find them. In the promised land, they had to go get them. Blessings won't come to them in the place of the wilderness. Not the kind of blessings that God has in mind for the promised land. They had to go to the promised land, the place where the blessings resided, and get them. Not all the great blessings come and find you. You have to go pursue them. You have to go out and get it. Great blessing awaited Moses for obeying God at the burning bush. But they would never find him at the burning bush. He had to go to the land of Egypt and deliver the children of Israel. He had to go somewhere. He had to do something. Many of the people in the Bible you see that had these great blessings, they had to do something. They couldn't, they didn't get to sit at home. Wait for the blessings to come. I'm going to sit here and pray and read my Bible. Now there are things he, he pointed at them to do. The devil knows that these great blessings don't come to the Israelites when they're in the wilderness, so he did everything he could to keep them there. God wants them in the promised land. Before this, their disobedience limited the blessings they could receive from God and from then prevented them from taking the abundant ones, the ones that he had waiting in the land where he called them to go. Verse 26, Nevertheless, they were disobedient, rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them against them to turn them to yourself, and they worked great provocations. This speaks of the rebellion in the land that began with kings like Jeroboam and Solomon. And even before that, you'll see it in the book of Judges. When every man did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in the land. 27. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven. And according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. So things would get rough because they were disobedient. The hand of God came off them. Then they get tired of the things being rough and they go back and they call to God and God says, okay, he sends a deliverer and he's going to show us there's a little bit of a cycle that goes on here. It's not a new thing for God to have people seek him after their rebellion, rebellion turned bad. I thought about this though. When they were in the wilderness, they had Moses as an intercessor. Because Moses was such a prominent figure, and Moses was involved in so many other aspects besides intercession. He was their leader. He was the voice of God. He did so many things for them as, as the, the head and the deliverer that God had called him to be. But one of the other roles was he was the intercessor. Whenever they needed an intercessor, it was Moses who stepped up. And so we know about this. We hear about the prophets throughout the books, the historical books in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. We hear about the prophets in the book of Judges and that God sent word to them, hey, you're getting off. You need to repent. You need to come back because they had something to say. And what they had to say 
not all, but many of these prophets, they had their words written down. And so we know that they were there. But I think at times like this, when Israel was rebellious, much like it was when we saw with the time of Moses, that folks, there were intercessors that were raised up. Alongside of the prophets, we had intercessors who were raised up. And we may never know their names. Perhaps some of the prophets also served as an intercessor. I think we can see that from some of the writings that they did. But there may have been other intercessors as well. People who were raised up and stood in the gap and did like Moses. Intercession always involves pulling on the mercy side of the party harmed. But there is no substance to the plea. But if there's no substance to the plea, there's little success. We look at Moses. Moses, he pulled on God's mercy. But he also had substance. Look at what the nations around you will say. If you're going to come into intercession, you have to have substance for both sides. You can't just have substance for the side that did wrong. Well, they need your help. Well, they're in a bad spot. Well, they're being destroyed. If you have no substance on the other side, you have no intercession. An intercessor stands in the gap. Moses did that. He knew what God needed out of this, and he knew what Israel needed out of this. And he stood in the gap to get both. Look at what the nations around you will say. You did this to demonstrate your power to the nations. What will your rightful judgment on these rebellious people yield for your stated goal? Now, to this, God agreed. But then he said, but you don't get my presence. Have you ever been on this one? All right, I'll forgive you, but I don't want to see you. <laughs> Isn't that about what God's saying? All right, look, I'm going to forgive you. I'm not going to judge you, but I don't want to see you anymore. And Moses wasn't having that either. No, 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 no. That's not how it's going to be. This is not the... This is not the right way. Mm -mm. Verse 28. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven many times. You delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly, did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments. What if a man does, he shall, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Well, the cycle continued many times. Different people following the same path. Yet for many years you had patience with them, verse 30, and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them, nor forsake them. For you are God, gracious and merciful. Now those prophets, we know that they had to sift through what was spoken by false prophets to keep them on the wrong path. For the true prophets God sent to turn them back to the true way. 
That's how it is. Well, God will send the true prophets to tell you the true word, to get you back on the true way. But the enemy will flood the airwaves. He'll raise up his prophets, send them out with the false word to keep you on the wrong path. One of those indicators we've mentioned before is numbers. False prophets were in abundance, but the true were few in number. You had to listen through all the noise to find the ones that God actually put the message with. God didn't do with them what His righteous, what His righteousness called for, and that was destruction. But He had a right to. In our intercessory prayers for mercy that we need, some try to say that God has no right to judge or destroy and He needs to forgive. I've heard this from, from people from different churches, different people as they're praying. Well, God, you don't, you can't destroy them. Well, God, you have no right to destroy them. Uh, yes, He does. Intercession is not about telling what God can do or shouldn't do. Intercession is pleading on the mercy side of God. If you're on the mercy side of God, you already know you've gone against God. If you haven't realized that you're going against God, you don't need an intercessor and you're not going to be in an intercessor's ministry. You gotta first off realize God is righteous. Whatever He did was right. Whatever we did was wrong. And people who approach God, well, I'm gonna be bold in prayer, and I'm gonna tell God what He can do and what He can't do. You're gonna be an intercessor. You gotta have substance on both sides of those prayers. All your substance is on one side. You will never be an intercessor. You gotta have substance on both, on God's side, which means you know God. And you know, God, I know this is what you want out of this situation. I know your righteous side requires this, but I know that this is what you want. And you find the substance to be the intercessor. To be like Moses is the best example of an intercessor I know of in the Word of God. I know of nothing that is closer or better to the, to the mark that God wants us to. Don't be ignorant in intercession. It won't work. It's not based on God's Word. It's not even based on knowing who He is. Intercession is based on both. You've got to know God's Word and you've got to know who He is. People who spend all their life in prayer are fruity. I don't like being around them. I know people. They spend all their time in prayer. And they're weird. And there's nothing in them that draws me to them. Because there's no Word. The devil loves to get you off in the service. He doesn't care if that service is prayer. If he can pull you off into the service of prayer and get you out of the Word, then your prayers have no substance. It won't take too long. Your prayers will have no substance. You'll be back on the pleading side. You'll be back on the demanding side. There's nothing in the Word that is grounded. That's why it's great what they were doing here. We read the Word for a quarter of the day, and then we pray and we worship for the other quarter of the day. They just did this for you know the number of days that they were there and do it all their, all their life. But you've got to balance out the word and prayer. If you're all word and no prayer, that's no good. Because you need the prayer to get the tie into the Holy Spirit so that you can have that feed that tells you what the wisdom is from the word. So you've got to have both. You've got to have prayer. And prayer most of the time is going to be just communion with God, just talking with God. And you've got to get into the word. And what you get into the word this year should be deeper than what you got into the word last year. And next year, it should be deeper than what you get into the Word this year. 
the deeper you get into the Word, the more understanding you get from it, the more it impacts your prayers. So your prayers ought to be better. And you ought to be able to stand up when somebody starts praying. They're praying in a certain direction. Oh, no, that's not right. Oh, man, they missed the Word of God over here. Well, that should grow in you. You should be able to hear that more. Because you're, you're growing in the Word. Some people just don't grow in the Word. And you can tell their prayers are the same all the time. They don't know how to pray. 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, an awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy. Do not let all your all the troubles seem small before you that has come upon us. Our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until now. Because Assyria really started the great oppression. They had other things that had gone on, other enemies that came before. But Assyria is the one that came and dispersed the ten tribes of the north. And they came down and wreaked havoc in the south as well. He says, do not let... All our troubles seem small before you. Verse 33, However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings, nor our princes, our priests, nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you have given them or in a large and rich land which you set before them nor did they turn from their wicked works true repentance does not cover up or lessen the sin but owns up to it and to the great mercy God has shown that's true repentance doesn't ever cover up or lessen the sin it owns up to it this is what I did father I need your mercy Recognizing God was mostly right and we were mostly wrong is not repentance. It may sound good to you, that's not repentance. No, God is never mostly right. God is always right. And when it comes to repentance, we are not mostly wrong. We are wrong. Recognizing the pattern of rebellion is a great step in preventing them from following it as well. This is so important. They do not go through all these things with the fathers because they're trying to achieve forgiveness for what the father did. They're not feeling like God is going to be holding us accountable for what our fathers did. God does not hold the sons accountable for the sins of the fathers. He's very clear about that. They did not have to go back and to begin to do all these things. But they chose to. And there's, there's good reason for it. I want to jump ahead of myself and get into it before. Verse 37. Here we are, servants today, in the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it. You got us back to the land. But we are servants in this land now. It was our promised land, but because of our rebellion, we're now servants in the land that you gave us. And it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle and at their pleasure. And we are in great distress. Basically, they're saying this, our current state of servanthood in our own land is a result of our rebellion. For we are here and not in a foreign land 
anymore. So we plan for that. Our increase blessing goes to another instead of ourselves. You're still increasing us. You are still blessing us in the land. But now that increase goes to another. goes to the kings that are over us. Because of it, we are in great distress. This may be a plea for God to change this condition. It may also be a plea or a looking toward the coming Messiah. It's not specifically mentioned there, but I wonder if Messiah is not on their mind because they know the prophecies that have come about the Messiah and what he would do. When Messiah comes, the suppression of these other kings will be gone and we will be under the king of David again. Because of all this, we make sure covenant, we make, make sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. So God's work in us must come to a point of decision to change and not merely stop at the point of feeling like I want to change. You can feel like you want to change all you want to. You've got to come to a point where you do the change. And here they do all this process because accountability can help. We're going to become accountable to our Levers, the Levites, the priests. They're all going to say, hey, you sealed this. You signed this. This is you. Let's go. We don't want God dealing with us for sins of those who came before us as if we're the ones who did the sins. Isn't that right? Would you ever want somebody to come, you know, your grandfather robbed the bank, so now you got to pay up? Uh, I never saw that money. <laughs> I don't know what he did with it. I don't even know if he actually did it. What grandfather are you talking about? Am I sure I'm related? <laughs> you might have all these kind of things come out. But we wouldn't like people digging through the past and finding sins of the folks in, the, in our history. This is your grandmother. This is your great, great, great aunt or things like that and saying, well, you are responsible for that. But this is what they're doing. They're going back into the history and they're seeing all these followers. We have just isolated those who have Jewish descent. So we all came from them and they rebelled against you. We know they rebelled. They are not repenting for acts of sin they didn't do. They're reminding themselves that every one of our fathers had fallen into this kind of rebellion, got pulled out and went back into it, got pulled out and went back into it, got pulled out and went back into it. And now we are here. We have been pulled out of that rebellion. We were suck, sunk in it the most of any of them. But God pulled us out and he put us in the land. And we are reminding ourselves of all these things that have gone on so that we don't repeat them. We don't go that direction again. Now there are people who wish to peep the whole people today guilty on the hook of their sins of their past. They got people who make whole occupations out of this. We're going to dig up, put you under hypnotic trance and dig up what it was done to you when you were a child. And then it will tell you how many sessions at $300 a session it will take to get you out of that. There's people who will do this. But it goes on all kinds of, of places. You will see this attitude in many other places. This is not a godly attitude. Because God says, I don't hold you guilty for the sins of your fathers. Certainly not for the sins of your grandfathers and not your great-grandfathers and not your great-great-grandfathers, great-great-grandmothers, whoever it might be. He does not hold us accountable for that. That's God's pattern. But when you look at things that are trying to gain foothold, this whole thing of reparations, 
This is built along this worldly creation. This is to get people to pay up today for something they had no part with. The thing that really shocks me about how many people go along with this is, all right, you want to take a look, talk about the, the money that was lost. Well, first off, you don't know those people you're getting it from ever had any inherit, any ties to that at all. But what I will tell you this is that 600,000 people died in that war. Most of them were in the north, and most of the people in the north were fighting over the issue of slavery to get rid of it. 360,000 people died in the north. 258,000 in the south. Now, most of that is because the north did not have a decent general. The south had probably one of the best generals of the day. General Lee was probably one of the best generals out there. And I know the story that got him on their, their side. He was a day from being the northern commander. There's an amazing, amazing story on that and, and what swayed him over on it. But it was a sad thing that it went that way. All the north did was they just kept throwing men and machinery. And the south just finally couldn't handle all the men and machinery and the, the war was lost. But what about reparations for the people who gave up fathers and sons? They never talk about that. And I'm not saying that they should. That's not it at all. But you see, this is the concept that works in the people's minds. This is the worldly concept. It is not a godly one. And if we pick up an ungodly attitude, it will drive us from knowing God, not knowing Him. We've got to stay out of that. That's a worldly thing. I won't, get, I won't touch it. I won't pick that up in, in my head. I won't pick it up in my thoughts. There's no way. I know where it comes from. It is wrong. And it is not biblical, and it is not godly. If we want to be like God, we cannot adopt worldly views and worldly creations. If we do, it will compromise us. God wants us to understand the past so as not to repeat it. He is not looking for us to go and dig up sins and then try and make up for them. Nor should we dig up things of, older, of others' past and hold them in judgment of it. Ever notice that? The devil wants to sometimes tell you a friend of yours and dig up something in their past and show them, see, they're no good. They're no good. No, that's not right. Have they been a good friend to you? Then why in the world are you going to listen to somebody who says that 20 years ago they were this way? Well, it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I was different too. 20 years ago, I was under some things that I shouldn't have been under. And I'm over top of them. Maybe they are too. But you've got to take witness of who they are now. Who has God made you now? A whole lot better. Isn't it nicer to have King David as King David than when he was boy King David? He grew. God grew him into a lot of things. And he was ready for the task that was ahead for him. God's grown you into a lot of things. He's brought people around you. Don't let people tell, tell you the folks that have been helpful for you, great for you. Well, they're no good because of this. Don't adapt their viewpoint. Because up till now, I will bet that you have adopted God's viewpoint of that person. And God sees them. This is how he sees them. And then somebody wants to come and tell you, well, they've got these sins in their past, and I can't believe that you're friends with them. That's just an, a, the devil's way of cutting people out of your life that are helping you. Or just get, at least getting you suspicious of them. Don't let that happen. God is not interested in the past to dig it up. He is interested in the past that you don't repeat it. That's all. That's his interest. What kind of mercy 
are we showing when we do such things? And with that in mind, what kind of mercy are we going to receive? True repentance is not just about acknowledging our sins. It is more about recognizing and being mindful of who God is, His mercy, and the good He has done despite our unfaithfulness. Every time we go into prayer with God, we should be able to say, God, I think of those times when I was unfaithful or I was not as faithful as I know I should have been, that I know I could have been, and what I know now. But you were so merciful to me. Look at all that you brought me through. Look at the protection you put me under. You were looking out for me. And, and look how I was. Oh, my God. Thank you. See, that's good. That brings you to a good place. But if he brings you to a place of guilt and condemnation, oh, God, I'm no good. I'll never be any good. I see all these things. that I, No, no, no. God still loved you. Notice this. God didn't feel like he had to change that about you. He could still work with you. Just like I can still work with this Abram guy. I can still work with him. I may not love the name, but I, I can work with him. All right, look. He can't work with it. Let's change his name to Abraham. But God didn't need to do that to work with him. Well, there are some things that come to us from God that are by his mercy. He can only do so much when it's by his mercy. That puts a ceiling on it. There's a limit to how much he can do. Others are because we are in covenant. And sometimes we may be thinking, oh, this is the best yet. If I can get the things that are in covenant, this is the best yet. Mm. But the best comes from his blessings. What she does is a reflection of how pleased he is with us. Yes, God can have different levels of being pleased with us. But it's not based on production. It's not based on the size of our gift, even how hard we work for him. They can be a factor. But what always catches God's eye the most is the right attitude of the heart. Remember that time he sat in the back of the temple and he watched all the people put in the offerings? The one that impressed him was the lady who gave all she had. It wasn't the size of the gift. It's what it showed him about her heart. God's impressed with the heart. Don't ever let the actions of some people that are around you taint you. God knows the heart. If you are being drawn to them, it's probably because God is drawing you to the good part in them. And maybe you've got some things to help them get over some of those actions that you might even be able to see as detrimental. Whether they're under God's mercy, whether they're under God's covenant, or they are reaping the blessings because they have pleased God. Doesn't mean we should ever write anybody off. Thank God Moses did not write off people that were purely under God's mercy. But he got them to the point where they were ready to step into what they had as covenant and what they had being pleased, pleasing God, receiving such great blessings. Look at the people that are around you. Don't let the enemy cause you to be in disdain of the people that are around you, to look at their past, to make judgments on them. You don't need to do any of those kind of things. 
love on the people that God has put in your life. Make them into something better. If you do, they'll make you into something better. Moses poured into people, and when he left, he had a whole lot of folks take that group over and to lead them into the promised land. It was no longer just Joshua. There were others, great people, that helped that out. One of the best examples you can see, of course, is David, who was stuck in the wilderness by himself, and he found all the people that no one else wanted, and out of it, he made some great men. They may have been under the mercy of God, but he showed them how to get into the blessings of God, and they became a great blessing to him. Most of his cabinet, most of his high-ranking officers came out of that group of people that he had there, and most people just wrote them off. Don't write them off. Look at what we can see from this. Six and a half minutes of prayer. Six and a half minutes. And we see so much glorifying God, recognizing the past mistakes. We're not going to make them. We're not going to go in that same direction. And God, we are in this situation because of our rebellion. But don't look at this and hold us here. Bring us to a place. And I don't know, I'll have to wait till I get to heaven to find out. Were they looking for Messiah? Was that a call for Messiah? I don't know. I kind of think it was. But Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for such a great example of people who knew how to handle the past. To not let it bind them. To not let it hold them back. And certainly not to repeat it. I thank you, Father. And we can learn about how to deal with our own past. We're not here to hold people under the past. We're here to move them into the future, into the calling and direction that you have called. And I thank you that we will be instruments to help that, never instruments to pull people back into the past. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.